welcome to Queers Did That, a queer history podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. And I'm Katie. Hi, Katie. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> How is your Kingdom Hearts going? Uh, it's, it's, it's going. It's, let's leave it at that. I don't understand anything that's going on. Me either. Cool. Yep. So, Katie, have you heard of Barbara Smith? no i hadn't either until recently Mm. so this is a new one for me okay i have never heard i had not heard of her until a couple weeks ago and this is the first time we're also doing someone who is we're talking about someone who is still alive so (laughs) that's a plus yay she has a twitter you should follow her on twitter it's actually really interesting no sad ending here huh not yeah i mean well she's (laughs) she's still alive so yes no sad ending i guess yay yes i saw her and like read about her in out magazine because laverne cox was doing different like feature ads and stuff on black queer women and she was one of barbara smith was one of the ones who was featured and i was like i don't know who she is i should learn about her more because it, it was a little like nice blurb about her and you know out.com but mm-hmm. you know I, I was like oh this will be a good way i think to wrap up february yeah and someone new and someone neither of us heard of so we're both learning great yeah well i already learned <laughs> because i'm gonna be telling you yes but cool wait, wait you mean you don't just wing these all the time don't tell people <laughs> my secret oh okay yes so Barbara Smith was born December 16, 1946. Her parents, Hilda Beale Smith and Gartrell Smith, met while attending Fort Valley State University, then State College, mm-hmm. a historical black college in the 1940s. They, this was Central Georgia, 1940s, Jim Crow. So they were like, hey, let's move to Ohio because to escape the racism and the economic opportunity, you know, increase their chance of better economic opportunity. Right. But Hilda's relatives did not like the marriage. I don't know why. The relationship fell apart because of that, which then forced then-pregnant Smith to return home to her family in Georgia. The children, Barbara and Beverly Smith, identical twins, so oh. Barbara has identical twin. Okay were born prematurely. Mm. Uh, Hilda died from complications from rheumatic fever when they were nine. And the siblings were brought up by Smith's extended family with her grandmother as the primary caretaker. They grew up in Cleveland, living in a two-family household with her grandmother, aunts, and a husband of an aunt. Smith credits her dedication to schooling and education to her home environment because her grandmother had been a school teacher specifically to black pupils and her aunts attended school whenever they could smith recalled quote i was never interested in any other grade except for an a but that wasn't because someone was threatening me at home it was not about that it was like we go to work every day you go to school school is your job There was no intimidation around achieving in school. It was just like, you have a mind, you're supposed to use it. At home, they rarely talked about segregation or economic disparities, but obviously 
she talked about and like experienced racial discrimination and segregation mm-hmm. and disparities because yeah it was the 50s and 60s yeah i mean it's the planet earth but she grew up believing that she was ugly because she didn't see anyone who looked like her at all as described as a beautiful person oh representation is important and also there was a french instructor that she had who didn't believe that smith belonged in her summer french seminar (laughs) because racism (laughs) you can't be in here you're black you can't speak french yeah apparently tell that to colonialism yes (laughs) but her grades and scores gained her entrance into mount holyoke i think i'm saying that right college Mm. in 1965 Mm. But because of racial animosity, she was like, I'm tired of this. And she transferred to the new school in New York City, which I applied to, but I didn't go. I think I got in. I don't remember. Wait, what's it called? The new school. The new school? That's what it's called. I have literally never heard of that. That's when I wanted to become a photographer. Oh. It's like artsy. I remember that face. Oh, I mean, I remember you talking. You don't No, no, no. I remember you telling me about that face. <laughs> I was like, yes. Not that I was there for that. You were not there for that. Yeah. But she went there for social research, and she studies social sciences. She did return to Mount Holyoke for her senior year and graduated in 1969. Hmm. She said that being born in segregation, she believed it was easy to develop a political consciousness. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Even before she entered college, she became a volunteer for CORE, which is the Congress of Racial Equality. Hmm. In 1965, she helped to desegregate the Mount Holyoke College that she then went to Mm. and participated in the Students for a Democratic Society activities. During her year at the new school, she traveled to Chicago and participated in protests before the Democratic National Convention. As, you know, black nationalism and like the civil rights movement progressed, she was not a fan of the sexism that she experienced in male-dominated groups. And that's when she turned to black feminist politics. Mm-hmm. In 1973, she attended her first meeting of the National Black Feminist Organization, or MBFO, which I will be referring to later because acronyms are a lot easier to say. Mm-hmm. Smith settled in Boston after receiving her master's in literature from the University of Pittsburgh. Her sister's staff position at Ms. Magazine allowed Beverly to get you know, good contacts. And through that publication met Margaret Sloan, who was the founder of NBFO. Oh, so she was... Oh, wait. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So, like, NBFO was already started when she met Margaret Sloan. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. She wanted to... There was going to be a regional conference for the NBFO in 1974. So she caucused with women from Boston area and established the Boston chapter of... The National Black Feminist Organization. But as many organizations like this type of thing, there was a lack of direction, kind of. There was kind of a lack of direction from the national, on a national level, of where to go with this organization. So the Boston chapter kind of had the independent nature and decided as a group more on conscious raising awareness and grassroots organizing to help the poor and working families instead of necessarily what the greater scheme of the organization was doing as a whole because they really didn't have real direction of what they wanted to do right so then they just decided to help people yeah then they just decided to help people yes 
Yes, so this ended up leading with that that chapter held politics that were significantly more radical, way more radical than the whole organization. Smith and other people in that chapter formed the Kumbahi River Collective. It was named after the successful military operation led by Harriet Tubman during the Civil War at a river in South Carolina. I believe that was part of an episode in Drunk History. That makes sense. I think we watched They The collective quickly moved to write a manifesto. So they wrote the Combahee River Collective Statement, and it outlined the objectives, but also identified the group being class-conscious, sexually-affirming black feminist organization. So since they recognized lesbianism as a legitimate identity, it kind of strengthened the debate within black feminism and the larger women's movement. Mm. Because, you know, <laughs> intersectionality, hard problem with people, hence larger lore being like, hey, I'm a woman, and I'm black, and I'm lesbian. Yes. So, you know, Barbara Smith was also like, hey, I'm black, I'm a woman, lesbian, all those things are important. Well, at this point, was she like out and about? Like, was she oot and boot? Yeah. Oh, okay. So she, she was like, hey, I'm a lesbian. Yeah. Black. Socialist black feminist organization that emphasized the intersections of racial, gender, heterosexist, and class oppression in the lives of African Americans and other women of color. The collective also worked on issues such as reproductive rights, rape, prison reform, sterilization, abuse, violence against women, healthcare, and racism within the white women's movement. Hmm. They created the collective to avoid hierarchy and provide members with a sense of equality. The organization, unfortunately, lost momentum eventually because conversations of lesbianism and educational advancement alienated some members from participating. Oh. Leadership conflict and interpersonal disputes, membership declined, and the last meeting was held in 1980. So how long did it last? So that was... So that was five years. And did they, like, accomplish anything? Well, I think, you know, you're just like... I think that's hard to... When you're combating, like, I know, like, when you're combating, like, systematic systematic things, but I'm just, like, wondering, like, I mean, I'm sure good came of it, right? I'm just wondering if there was anything tangible. I'm sure there was. I don't have anything specifically, but Barbara Smith was also, Barbara Smith was also very much into American literature and writing. She pursued English study uh, through education you know, reading James Baldwin's Hotel on the Mountain. She resolved to become an expatriate writer, but interested, but because of her interest in social movements, she resigned herself to literature studies at home. So she wanted to leave America and yeah. write, but instead she stayed. Yeah. Gotcha. After reading, Smith saw that Alice Walker was going to be teaching a course in African-American women writers. Okay. Smith enrolled in the class, and she also vowed to teach women writers of color whenever she taught. And she began teaching at Emerson College in 1973. And so she started teaching women writers of color at that point. But a lot of the works available by writers of color mostly focused on experiences of men. But by the suggestion of her friend, Audre Lorde. Oh, tying it all in. Yeah. Smith with Lorde helped found Kitchen Table, Women of Color Press, which we also talked about. In the Audre Lorde episode. Look at that. Yeah. So it was established in Boston in 1980, but it was relocated to New York in 1981. Smith, as well as her colleagues like Lord, published several pamphlets and books. Smith has stated that the legacy of the kitchen table was that 
in contemporary publishing, women of color writers like Alice Walker and Trey Morrison entered more of the mainstream American literary canon where and female and influenced female feminist studies talking about intersectionality as like a legitimate way of looking at things because it should. So <laughs> you know, it was one of those things where without kitchen table, you unfortunately probably wouldn't have had as many not that there's that many, there should be more, but the fact that the the black female writers that we know about from the past are mostly because of Kitchen Table. Right. Smith also wrote stuff during this time, wrote a collection of essays and articles and reviews. She wrote Toward a Black Feminist Criticism in 1982, and for, which was first published in Conditions Magazine. That article is frequently cited as a breakthrough article in opening the field of black women's literature and black lesbian discussion. She edited three major collections about black women, and her books have been in numerous anthologies, like her writing has been in numerous anthologies. She has since collected her various writings in an anthology, The Truth That Never Hurts, Writings on Race, Gender, and Freedom in 1998. She was also very critical of the mainstream LGBTQ movement because this is still very prominent now. She was concerned about how it strayed from its revolutionary roots. It excluded the concerns of LGBTQ people of color. It was kind of going away from systematic change. I remember, I mean, I think, obviously we were 90s kids, so I can't really remember too much, but I do remember there was kind of this, well, I didn't recognize it as a shift because we were born at the end of the 80s, but mm. I guess it would be a shift of, you know, that acceptance and, like, tolerance. Like, tolerance became the word. You know, queer eye for the straight eye, the guy, and all those other things where it's, like, you know, Ellen coming out. It's about tolerance. Right. Versus, like, we're here, we're queer. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Silence equals death. Went from that to, like, you know, in, like, 10 years, went to, you know, mainstream, trying to be mainstream pop culture, which, you know... Not necessarily the best thing in the world. I mean, but it's not the worst thing in the world, too. No, but I think if you completely, you're ignoring large parts of your community for the sake of lifting only a small portion of it up isn't good. But how is going mainstream only lifting, like, a portion? No, I'm not saying necessarily mainstream, but I think, but just, like, also going mainstream and not tending to the needs like, wow. simultaneously not tending to the needs of people in community. Gotcha. You're not lifting everyone up through becoming mainstream. You're, You're just, just carrying like, yourself up and then closing the door. Like, just like, oh, look at these white gays. Yeah. These harmless white gays. So. Yeah, so white gays became safe. Yeah. And we're like, okay, everything's solved. Marriage quality. Mm. And you, we still have, you know, AIDS is still a problem. Homeless youth is still a problem. You know, trans people being safe is still a problem but you have a lot of big white gay funders who are like yeah no we're good we're good we did it we did it it's like oh racism is solved we had obama (laughs) we have marriage yeah mind you that there's more legislation this year to prevent gay people from adopting than there like has been in like 
over a decade. But yeah, no, we definitely won just with marriage. I'm, marriage is important. I'm just saying. <laughs> There's a lot more work to There's do. There's a lot more other things to say. Back on track. Mm. Smith wrote an essay for The Nation in 1993. And I'm going to... It's kind of a long quote, but I think it's important. So this is from the this essay. This is from the essay, yes. Okay. Revolution seems like a largely irrelevant concept to the gay movement of the 90s. The liberation politics of the earlier era, which relied upon radical grassroots strategies to eradicate oppression have been largely replaced by the assimilationist civil rights agenda. The most visible elements of the movement have, been, have put their faith almost exclusively in electoral and legislative initiatives, bolstered by mainstream media coverage, to alleviate discrimination. When the word radical is used at all, it means confrontational, in-your-face tactics, non-strategic organized aimed at the roots of oppression. When lesbians and gay men of color urge the gay leadership to make connections between heterosexism and the issues like police brutality, racial violence, homelessness, reproductive freedom, and violence against women and children, the standard dismissive response is, those are not our issues. At a time when the gay movement is under unprecedented, unprecedented public scrutiny, lesbians and gay men of color and others committed to anti-racist organizing are asking, does the gay and lesbian movement want to create a just society for everyone? Or does it want to eradicate the last little glitch that makes life difficult for privileged white male queers? If the gay movement ultimately wants to make a real difference, as opposed to settling for handouts, it must consider creating a multi-issue revolutionary agenda. This is not about political correctness, it's about winning. As a black lesbian poet and warrior Audre Lorde insisted, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Gay rights are not enough for me, and I doubt they are enough for most of us. Frankly, I want the same thing now that I did 30 years ago when I joined the civil rights movement, and 20 years ago when I joined the women's movement, came out and felt more alive than ever, than I ever dreamed possible. Freedom. And so that's is, that's not the whole essay, right? The that's not the quote. whole essay, but cool. I yeah. I took a chunk because I thought that was, got the point yeah, <laughs> across think, without me reading the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here's an essay. <laughs> This is, this is why everyone's listening it's to me to read essays. Yeah. 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 Like we were saying, it's she was one of those voices that was calling for intersectionality and focusing on people in the queer community who are not white gay dudes. And we have this back and forth of things now, things that are things that are deemed radical, quote unquote, are are just organizing and grassroots things but they're not seen as you know safe and friendly and we're just like them and they're just like us and if you know a gay person then you won't be a piece of shit <laughs> which you know a lot of times helps but you know just be it not be a piece of shit regardless which would be nice but it's fine where was i going i don't know i have no idea great oh so like the grassroots <laughs> thing like this is something we're, de- we're dealing with now because it, that's seen as like off the wall you know why are you disrupting things when you had people like laying on the steps of the capitol like 30 years ago and now we're like let's just be nice and happy and be accepted <laughs> and gay marriage is great like gay marriage is important again i'm gonna say mm-hmm. but and also has its roots in the age crisis which we'll talk about at some point mm-hmm. but i think like having women like smith and continue like 
her involvement in gay rights and women's rights and black civil rights, you know, kind of just emphasizes the need to shift the mainstream, like, mindset of, like, what gay looks like. Right. Because, you know, if you look on TV, it's, like, a gay white 16-year-old boy, Mm -hmm. which obviously exists, but... You don't see the other stories. You don't experience that. And unfortunately, and fortunately, because of that, you have writers and people like, like Barbara Smith, yep. you know, creating Kitchen Table and creating those spaces that allow them to thrive and shine like the light on themselves because no one else is shining the light on them. And more recently, mm. Smith was elected to the Albany, New York Common Council or City Council oh. in 2005. She was reelected in 2009. And also worked, she also worked during this period with the New Yorkers for Alternatives to Death Penalty, Solutions, Innovative Solutions to Violent Crime. She was active about youth development, violence prevention, and educational opportunities for poor, minor, minority, and underserved persons. She didn't seek re-election after that, but she currently works with the city of Albany's mayor, spearheading initiatives that address economic, racial, and social inequality. And again, she's also on Twitter. She's a should be seventy three, seventy four, seventy four, yeah. That's still still doing it, <laughs> still trucking. Yeah. So there's just like there's just she's done so much and she's written so much. I can't even like I feel like I'm not even scratching the surface. But a lot of her writings and the forming the collective and all that stuff moved forward the queer, you know, women's movement, especially for Black queer women. So forward. Because they were getting, unfortunately, so left behind from the mainstream. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. I do recommend reading the out.com thing. I think it's really interesting. Also, the other people, too. Liver and Cox, an amazing job, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was Barbara Smith. Cool. Do you have any questions, comments, concerns? I mean, no. Well, what's her Twitter handle? And is she a prolific tweeter she joined in april 2017 okay fairly new fairly new she has about 5600 followers okay should be more should be more <laughs> yes and she's she has like a little bit over 5000 tweets oh it seems like a decent amount it is but like it's also not at the same time oh i mean i have like 120 tweets or whatever so or i don't even think no i have like 30 tweets no Oh, and it was Janet Mock that specifically interviewed her for the Out magazine. Mm. Yeah, no, she's uh she's been doing a bunch of stuff, and she's still. I mean, it's still a pretty active Twitter. I just think it's you have like things seem so far away, even though they're not. Yeah. Just because of how history is taught, but because of the internet, it's like you have a civil rights feminist, black feminist, queer icon, who is on twitter yeah who i follow you could you could just tweet at her i could (laughs) and she would see it probably i don't want to because that's terrifying i'm just saying i have anxiety it's just funny that you could do that yeah and also cool yeah it was really cool yeah good job brother smith good job yeah so i think that's our episode if you have any comments or questions, you can email us at queersidthat at gmail.com or tweet us at queersidthat. And until next time, make gay history and make history gay. Bye. Bye.